0: From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. So we're in the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter two or open it up on your your phone, your device there. Uh, the, there is so much in in this book more than we have time to share, and I find myself trying to squeeze so much in in the short time um, because there's so much. We're only in chapters one through three. We're looking at at John's letter to the seven different churches in Revelation. If you have been with us, been tracking with us, hopefully you have. If not, go back and you can listen to them through YouTube on our website, uh, Facebook as well, I believe, John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there for the testimony of Jesus. And he's the last living apostle. And he has an encounter with Jesus on the island while in the spirit, while in worship. And Jesus gives him a revelation of what is to come for these churches. And these, This is one revelation. This is not multiple revelations. It's one revelation Given to seven churches. And what's important to understand is these seven churches really give us the context for the remainder of the book. Uh, what immediately we tend to think of when we think of Revelation is we think of end times, right? We think of doomsday, we think of future. But that's not really the main point of the book. The book is uh, written, John writes, in apocalyptic uh, literature, that's a genre. That uses visions and pictures to try to describe historical events and theological ideas. You know, Jody and I were uh, away this uh, past two days in Toronto, and we went to a restaurant where you dine in the complete dark. I kid you not. You go you go down these stairs, and they, you're in this dimly lit room, and they take your order, and then a visually impaired person, you put their hand your hand on their shoulder, and they lead you into a pitch pitch black room to your chair where you where you dine and i'm not even kidding you like if you could like i close my eyes right now and i can see the light penetrating through my eyelids i could see no light there's no light anywhere there's not a glimpse there's not there's not even a crack there's nothing you open your eyes and it's pitch black you close them it's pitch black and you're trying to get your bearings and you can't you're you're trying to you're trying to listen a little bit you're feeling you're like it it was the craziest experience it was actually a really cool experience but I, I don't know if i would do it again um you're sitting there with your meal and you're like how much is on the plate like i'm literally trying to cut my food and feeling my plate and and using my fingers to feel is there more food there that i miss Did, like i'm not even kidding you. there's there is there is no light whatsoever and i we found ourselves having to use our other senses to really grasp what we were experiencing and that's a little bit like apocalyptic literature it uses your imagination to set the present moment in light of unseen realities in the future, right visions and pictures and and images. But it also seeks to set the present moment in light of unseen realities of the present. It's as if Jesus is coming to to John and to these churches and he's pulling back the curtain so they can see what's really going on. Uh, One scholar I read, um, said that John likely used this genre, apocalyptic literature, because while he was exiled on the island of Patmos as a prisoner, the Roman guards there would have read everything that he sent out. Every single thing that he sent out. So, so reading this, as he wrote this in this, in this uh, genre of the time, it's not something we have now today, but it was something that's familiar in that day. Um, them reading this, they would have just thought, oh, it's just, you know, crazy man, meaning nothing, you know, Whatever. Images, pictures, apocalyptic literature. But to those who were experiencing what these churches were experiencing, these images and these pictures, they would have actually meant something to them. So it shows us things um, that things are not always as they seem. Not always as they seem. And so we get these visions that really serve to help the church understand how to follow Jesus in their time. And then for us, it helps us understand how to follow Jesus in our time. In fact, I was reading this past week. It came across another book by the name of Daryl Johnson. It's called Discipleship on the Edge. And he says that Revelation is really a book about discipleship. It's what it means to follow Jesus in times when it's hard to follow Jesus. And he actually suggested, he's like, if I lived in a place where I would not allow the Bible, but they would allow me one book, I would choose the book of Revelation because it gives you pictures of how to follow Jesus and what's happening behind the scenes. So the invitation to these churches and the invitation to us is to hear what the Spirit is saying um, to these churches and to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And my prayer, like, listen to me, my prayer is that for you and for me and for Parkways that we would hear and respond. Like, I, you know, I come up here sometimes and I, and I think afterwards, I'm like, am I, just, am I just talking? And then we just go on our merry way and nothing happens. But my prayer is the Holy Spirit takes his words uh, from this, this text and just hits our heart and transforms us. Otherwise, it's mute. It's pointless. So let us hear and let us, let us respond. So, so far, we've set the foundation. We looked at um, the beginning of the letter. It uh, tells us it's a letter from the glorified Jesus who sits on the throne. He walks among the churches, right? The first vision that John sees is not some dragon or scroll or futuristic event. It's Jesus, The first picture we have is Jesus. He's the first and the last. He's the ageless one. He is the one that is beyond time. He's before time. He's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And we see Jesus enthroned in glory. And we get a picture of Jesus that maybe we're not used to. We looked at the message to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was an established church. They had a really good track record. They were good at following truth, but their hearts had grown cold, and they neglected the things they did at first, And the challenge for Ephesus and the challenge for us is to relight the fire that we had for God, to relight the love because we can hold truth. We can stand by the truth of God's word, but we can neglect love. And so now we move to the next one. It's a message to the church in Smyrna, and I'm going to read it for you. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, it says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna right? so this is Jesus dictating. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the life as your victor's crown, or some translations may say crown of life. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So let's bow our heads one last time and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak. Holy Spirit, we open our our mind in our heart, and we turn our attention to what you want to say, and we pray, and I pray, God, that everything you want to speak to us as individuals, you would speak, and it would, it would be seeds that would would be planted in fertile ground that would that would be sown into the ground and germinate and grow and transform us. Lord, maybe there's something going on in our circumstances, and we need this reminder today. We need the reminder of who you are. We need the reminder to remain faithful, to endure. So speak as only you can speak, God. We're thankful for your word that we have it today. we thank, thankful, Holy Spirit, that you speak through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, have you ever found yourself in a position where your life circumstances are pressing down on you and it's testing your faith? Maybe that's just the past year and a half for many of us. How do you remain faithful under pressure? How how do you hold on to your faith in Jesus when life is turbulent? Is it possible to remain committed to God when your commitment to God is causing pressure? And this is Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was going through a difficult time, yet they'd remained faithful, but more pressure was coming that was really gonna test their faith. And Jesus calls them to endure. So let me introduce you to Smyrna. Smyrna is in, is the modern-day city of Izmir in Turkey. Here's an image of the modern-day city. The city of Smyrna was north of Ephesus, and the city stretched down the slopes of a mountain range near the Aegean coast. Smyrna was known for its prosperity and elegance, and they s- scholars suggest that Smyrna competed with Ephesus for predominance. It was a cultural center. It was known for its wineries, art, and literature. There was a great library there. If you guys remember from school way back in the day, um, the great Greek poet Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. This was his home. Smyrna was his home. Goldsmiths, textile producers, and merchants contributed to the wealth of the city. Its cities' uh, streets were laid in straight lines and were paved with stone and bordered with colonnades. Colonnades are, you know, these kinds of pillars that you often see, these columns that support roofs and archways. This was actually, apparently the image that you're seeing right now was kind of like their their shopping mall, was their market square. It, it was known as a political center of Asia Minor. It had many temples, and it was one of the first places in the entire Roman Empire to worship Caesar as divine. It took obligation of Caesar worship seriously it was a faithful ally to rome even before rome was acknowledged in the area and so jesus tells john to write to the church that is in this prosperous cultural center and he says this these are the words of him who is the first and last who died And came to life again. So every letter that you're going to read in Revelation begins with a description of Jesus back from chapter 1. So if you're with us a couple weeks ago, we talked a little bit about that. And here the statement to Smyrna is that Jesus is the first and last. It all begins with him. It all ends with him. He is the resurrected Savior of the world. And this statement is going to have so much meaning for this church. It's going to be encouraging for this church because what they're facing... And for what they're going to face, that whatever comes, they're in the hands of the one who was first and last, that was there in the beginning and is there at the, end, at the very end. And I think this is something that we need to be reminded of, that as followers of Jesus, if we remain faithful and we, we, we are committed to God, whatever happens, that we are in the hands of the one who died and rose again. We are in the hands of the one who defeated death. So regardless of what comes our way in our life, that's that's the curtain being pulled back. We're, we're surrounded by our circumstance, but the curtain is pulled back and we see Jesus who is enthroned in glory and he's the first and the last and we're in his hands. And so he says this to encourage this church because of what they're about to go through. He's like, remember, I was there before it all started and I'm there at the very end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and rose again. I defeated the greatest enemy. So regardless of what you're facing, and listen, when we read stuff like this, we're like, "Ugh!" but this is a, what they were facing was heavy, was, 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 was hard, was extremely difficult. Picture uh, Kabul, the church in Kabul, the underground church that was just martyred. This is, this is Smyrna, okay? He's saying, regardless of what you're facing, remember, I, I got you. I got you. Secondly, this is actually speaking against the city itself. So if you remember a few weeks back, I said the major claim of Revelation is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's the major claim. Jesus is supreme, not Caesar, and the kingdom of God is victorious, not Rome or any other kingdom or the kingdom of darkness. And, and here's how we translate that into today. Jesus is Lord, not Trudeau. Jesus is Lord, not O'Toole. Jesus is Lord, not any political party. You, you fill in the blank. Jesus reigns supreme, right? The kingdom of God is victorious, not Canada, not United States, not Russia, not China, not the world. That's the claim. You see powers of darkness anywhere in our world, our society, in our nation, advancing. The reminder is Jesus is supreme. So Smyrna was actually known as the city that died and came back to life again. Circa 600 BC, the city was destroyed by a Roman empire uh, known as the Lydians. And 400 years later, it was rebuilt under Alexander the Great. And so they made this claim. And so the message of Jesus to this church was that he was the one who died and came back to life again. And the claims that this city has no currency over the sovereignty of God. And so it was a reminder for them of the predominance of Jesus considering their present state. And it's good for us too when we see the present state of, of our world. Not even our nation, just our world it would do us good to remember that this is who Jesus is. This is who we serve. So Jesus continues in in verse nine. He says this, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So unlike Smyrna, the church was poor. While the city was prospering and wealthy, and had elegance. The church was suffering from affliction and poverty, and the word affliction here means burdens that crush. Like picture a car being crushed at a wrecker, squeeze everything's being squeezed together, and the life is being sucked out of it. And maybe you're there. Maybe you feel like the burdens of life, the your circumstance, your situations, your work, whatever it may be. You're just feeling the squeeze. Like picture an, an orange being pushed through it, like a, a what I call as a juicer. And it's just, it's squeezed and all, maybe that's what your life is like. And that's the word affliction here. It's being crushed under the weight of it all. This church knew that. The word poverty here uh, is the word to mean nothing at all. This is not, they have nothing left. This is not, they have nothing to spare. This is not, they got their, their you know, their bread and butter, and then they got nothing for, for extracurriculars. This is not that. This is, they have zip. They have nothing. They are in abject poverty in a city that is extremely wealthy. And the mention of this Jewish group that is that is causing hostility shows us that their circumstances contributed to it all. It's, it's what's happening around them that's contributing to their affliction and their poverty. This is the persecuted church. This is a church that's being crushed deeply for their faith. This is a church that is striving to follow Jesus in a city that adores Rome, like adores Rome, in in a city that adores culture and adores Caesar, this is a church who worships Jesus as Lord in a city that worships the Roman emperor as Lord, and they were one of the first cities to do it. So this uh, this letter of Revelation was written around ninety five A D. And by that time, for the church, the early church as a whole, followers of Jesus, life had become extremely difficult. So if we go back a a few decades to 67 AD, there was an emperor by the name of Nero, and he was horrendous towards Christians. He was actually feeding Christians to lions just because he didn't like Christians. It was a terrible time, but persecution got uh, greater in 92 AD. The emperor of the time, I mentioned his name, the past couple weeks was a man named Demetrian And Demetrian, like all other Caesars before him, they demanded worship. They wanted the subjects to worship them. But he forced his subjects throughout the entire Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God. They were to call him Lord, and they were to call him God. And those that were refused were punished by death. This is what the Roman world was. So here's what would happen. Once a year, a Roman subject was to go to the temple of Caesar And worship Caesar by taking a pinch of incest and burning it at the altar while declaring Caesar is Lord. After they would do so, they were given a certificate to guarantee they'd perform the religious duty. And then they could take that and go on their merry way and worship and live life however they want. And the Christians, this is all they had to do at the time. All they had to do was go, a little pinch of salt, Caesar's Lord, then they can go worship, they can go live, and do their life as they seem. But if they didn't, if, if somebody refused, they were punished, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their income, they were robbed and even killed for their faith. What is this? This is the reality of the vision of the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter When when this church would would finish the letter, when they'd go through the letter and they'd get to that part that talks about the mark of the beast, this would resonate with them because that's exactly what they were experiencing. This culture could not do life unless it worshiped the emperor. In fact, some scholars actually suggest that this is why John was on the island because he refused to worship anybody but Jesus as Lord. That's why they attempted to martyr him and they couldn't And he was exiled because he would bow down to no one except for Jesus. Respect Rome, yes. Honor Caesar, sure. Worship him as Lord, no. And this is exactly what Smyrna wouldn't do. The church would not bow down. They would not worship Caesar. They'd give no man the name Lord except Jesus. In love, they would not conform. They wouldn't fight. They would lovingly refuse. And they'd accept the consequences. And so this... This discipleship that Revelation is teaching us here is that Jesus is worth following at all costs. Like That's the message there. He's worth following at all costs. Jesus is worth a life of non-comfort. Jesus is worth greater sacrifices. Jesus is worth worship if it costs you your livelihood and your life. And that's the greatest test, I think, of faith. Will you continue to follow under fire? And so this church, Smyrna, was crushed. They were afflicted. They lost everything because they would not bow down. They lost their jobs, their their, their items, their, their, their life was stolen from them. Christians were killed, and they lost, lost their lives for being unwilling to worship Caesar. Uh, if we fast forward time a little bit, go to 155 A.D., Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. You might have heard the name Polycarp before. Polycarp was martyred by burning for being a Christian. This is heavy stuff, I know, but it's what the church is. story goes like this, that the proconsul, the governor of the territory at the time, said to Polycarp, he says, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp responded, he said, 86 years I've served him, Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul said, I got wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. So the proconsul said, If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Listen to this. This is just like, ah. he says, I feel like this is like David standing before the Goliath or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the fiery furnace, okay? This is what the Polycarp says. He says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you knew nothing about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Can you say that? Are you ready to say that? So we have to settle in our mind. I read this this week from a pastor down south States. He says, down throughout history, we have the wrong picture of martyrdom and persecution. We think that these people were persecuted for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the real reason, absolutely. But no one heard that publicly. In fact, they were martyred and they were persecuted as enemies of the state, as atheists who did not believe Jesus was divine. They were denounced, evil was spoken of them, and the general public believed it. They were martyred as bigots, as narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and can contribute nothing to society. That is not the case, but that is what the story was sold. So when time comes, listen, when the time comes, your suffering for Jesus will not be a noble cause to our world. So our minds must be filled with the word of God. Look at Smyrna. How can they do that? How can they live in a culture where they know everything's gonna be taken from them? They're gonna lose their livelihood, possibly even their lives. Polycarp, your life for the sake of Christ because their mind is filled with the word of God. Their cup is overflowing with Jesus in the presence of, of the Lord. They are devoted. And we need to be like that when people start to persecute you turn on you for your faith, and I'm not just talking about, like, what we experience in our day-to-day life when someone at our workplace might make fun of us or stick their nose up at us or, you know, kind of just keep their distance. That's not persecution. Maybe bullying a little bit, but that's not persecution. I'm talking about you are literally stripped of nothing for your faith in Jesus, and there may come a time in our lifetime when we experience that in our nation. When the cost of following Jesus is everything. And we don't know that right now. We're living a nice, comfortable life, even with our masks on and our socially distanced and all that stuff. And I don't like it any more than anybody else does. But we live in comfort, we don't know this. So this is what this church was facing, and Jesus comes to them to encourage them and commend them for the state that they're in. He says, I see you, and I know what's going on. I know you've been crushed. I know things have been taken away. I know the poverty you're in. I know you have nothing left, but you're rich. He looks at them, and he looks at the physical and the mental. He looks at the persecution, and he calls them rich. Are you seeing what I'm seeing, Jesus? This is not rich. Everything is gone. You fee- do you see the, the crushing weight of the world? Do you see? I just lost my job, Jesus. My, my marriage is falling apart. Do you see? It's crushing me. I'm feeling squeezed. I feel like I got nothing left. I'm at the end of my rope. And you trying to call me rich right now? He says, I see it all. You're rich. Because there is a richness in spiritual things that has nothing to do with wealth, material blessing, physical circumstance. We can be a people who are rich in the things of God and have everything taken from us. I'm talking about, like, you don't own your house anymore, and you don't, you, you don't get any food unless somebody says so. You can be rich in the things of God. And at the same time, we can be a people who are rich in resource, and be bankrupt in the things of God. Sometimes we equate blessing, material blessing, and yes, sometimes it is, but sometimes we equate material blessing as God's blessing. And sometimes that is the case. God blesses people like that. That happens. But we cannot think that because I have, it means God is happy, and I'm rich in the things of God. This church had nothing but was rich in the things of God. And a lot of what they were experiencing came from this local Jewish synagogue, which Jesus called a synagogue of Satan. Now, Satan, the word Satan means accuser. And actually, when you see the, the name Satan or the word Satan in Scripture, sometimes it's not referring to the devil, but it's referring to a divine being that's accusing. Like, think of, like, a courtroom and the prosecutor that's accusing the, the defendant. Like, when we read Job, the book of Job, and we see the Satan go before Um, The throne room of God, it may not have been the actual devil, but an accusing spirit and saying, hey, have you considered Job? So he calls them a synagogue of Satan. This was a group that was showing hostility towards the church and accusing the church, accusing the church of evil. They denounced them publicly and they were slandering their name and they were claiming that the Christians were wrong in their teaching and that they were evil, likely because the Christians claimed Jewish roots and the, the Jews didn't, in this area, as was a local area, they didn't like that. They, the, the Christians claimed that Jesus is the son of God and Jews didn't like that and that he was the ruler of the world and, and they didn't think so and that Jesus was Lord and they didn't believe that they should do that. Now, this probably caused a lot of Christians to give up their beliefs, to denounce their faith, to shy and to hide. It probably dissuaded some from adopting Christian beliefs. I don't want to do that. Those people are persecuted. Persecution has a way of testing our faith to see if it's genuine. You have to truly believe in something to continue with it under fire, am I right? You have to really believe in that. You have to really believe that Jesus is who he says he is to continue following after Jesus when that following puts you in fire, like physical fire, or puts you before the mouths of actual lions, or strips away everything. Pastor Cole, you're preaching really hard stuff. I love you. Now, this likely drew the attention of the local authorities as well. So now this church, this little church was on their radar and they would have seen them as a threat to the social order which would have added to their affliction. They were greatly afflicted, but Jesus calls them rich in the spirit. We don't consider this in the West often and fortunately and unfortunately, we haven't experienced too much of it. But suffering of all kinds, all kinds of suffering, trials and tribulations of all kinds, James tells us, and persecution are some of the ways that God uses to sanctify his people. God uses suffering and hardship and difficulty to make his people more holy. It's like my kids. I can't just let my kids go on their life however they want because they would be little devils. So I have to I have to allow them to face difficulty and and, and they have to have consequences for their actions because it, it teaches them and trains them. And God uses hardship to make us more like Jesus. And that's really startling for us in the West, Western culture, North America. It's hard for us to compre- comprehend, but that's part of the gospel. Suffering of all kinds produces in us Christlikeness because Jesus suffered. To and on the cross. Hebrews chapter uh, 5, verse 8 says, Son though he was, he's the Son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Like what, what enthroned Jesus in glory wasn't the triumphal entry. It was his suffering. Is what he endured on the cross and how he defeated that. That he went through it and defeated that. One commentator said of Smyrna, he said, now persecuted Smyrna becomes sanctified Smyrna. Because God's people learn more about the Lord's riches in glory when we are motivated by tribulation." Because in circumstances like that, we learn what it means to depend on God. You don't depend on God when everything's going peachy and keen. You learn to depend on God when things aren't going the way you think they should go. Those those kinds of circumstances really position us to, to lean on God. So when you find yourself there, and when we find ourselves there and we find ourselves and maybe you're there right now, maybe you're you're in something or it's just what we're all experiencing and it's weighing on you and you're feeling the affliction, you're feeling the pressure, you're feeling the squeeze, you're feeling the crushing, wait, know that the Lord uses that to make you more like him if you let him. So Jesus comforts them and he strengthens them with his acknowledgement and encouragement. Can I just just encourage somebody? Can I encourage you? That if you're here and you know Jesus, he's your Lord, he sees you. Like he sees your circumstance. Like he knows exactly what you are going through. He knows what we're going through, but he knows what you are going through. He sees you. He says to them, I know your affliction. I'll walk among the churches. He knows what's going on. Don't let it hinder your faith. Let it strengthen your faith. Because you have a Lord that sees you, and he's the first and the last. And he was the one who died and was rose again. And he's with you. So then Jesus has this to say that I'm going to invite Matt, if you can come, come on up at this time. He says this in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Let me repeat that. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Very specific. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Somebody listen to this. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He's saying, you're going through a lot. You're about to go through more. Why don't you just kick me while I'm down, Jesus? Really? What you're facing is hard, but it's going to get harder. Jesus doesn't promise them that what they've faced so far is the end of their suffering, but the devil's going to unleash more, and he's going to mount up more affliction and more pressure to crush them because it's the devil's desire to sift your faith. Listen, somebody. It is the devil's desire to press you and to crush you and to do anything and everything to weed out your faith and have you no longer align yourself with Jesus. And for some of you, it's worked. The little bit of pressure you faced and you're walking away, you're going, that's not comfortable. I'm not doing that anymore. That's the devil's desire. He's saying this to this church. He says, listen, it's going to get harder. Because the devil wants to sift you out. He's gonna, I'm gonna let him test you. But if you endure even to the point of death, guess what? I'll give you the victor's crown. I'll give you the crown of life. Church, listen to that. That's for us too. That's what the devil does. He's gonna try to mount up pressure. This was the Romans. You can worship however you wanna worship, but first you have to worship Caesar. This was what the devil did when he tempted Jesus when Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert. He says, I'll give you everything, Jesus, but first you gotta worship me. And that's gonna be the test for all of us. The devil's gonna say, hey, you can have the life you want. You can have riches, you can have glory, you can have comfort, you can have peace. First you gotta bow down. And it's not gonna come like that. It's not gonna come like that. The temptation will be to worship the world, to do what the world wants and go the way of the world. It's really hard to not conform to the patterns of this world, right? It's really hard to not sink into that rut. It's really hard to be different than, I know that. It's so hard. But he's saying to the one who is faithful even to death, get the crown of life so he comes along this church to warn them the persecution is coming he says two things and i want i want us to hear these as well he says number one do not be afraid do not be afraid it seems like every time jesus is talking he's, he's reminding us don't be afraid don't be afraid why because he knows he knows what's coming he's at the beginning of time he is before time. He's at the end of time. He sees it all. He knows what's coming. He's the first and last. We fear. You want to know why we fear? Because we don't know. Because we don't know what's coming. So we play out scenarios in our head of what things could be. And we, and we allow that to grip us in fear. And that could be for any and anything in life. But he says, do not be afraid. Because he knows. Do you trust him? Can I just speak to some present circumstances? Do not be afraid of mandates that restrict. Do not be afraid of election results. Like, if the party that gets in that you really don't think should be in there and you really don't think follows after God and you think it's going to ruin whatever, remember that God is not surprised. Oh, I didn't see that one. He knows. So praise God that whoever gets in is the person appointed for this time, even if they lead the nation where you don't think they should go. Because God, for whatever reason, wants to use that for his will and his purpose. Do not be afraid of any oppressive rule if it comes. Do not be afraid of persecution when it comes. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. You see that all throughout scripture. Do not fear. The second thing he said to them is is this, be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful. He calls this church, the suffering church that's got nothing, to be faithful even when it costs them their lives. Listen to what the Spirit is saying here. Pressure is gonna increase in your life as an individual. You're gonna face pressure in this life. You're gonna feel crushed at times. You're gonna feel squeezed. You're gonna lose out. Things may be taken away. You may be persecuted, you may be suffered. You will have pain at times. You'll have discomforts, trials of all kinds, and all of that will test your faith. You may even die for it. Will you endure? We've been conditioned to comfort in the West. We don't suffer well. When I'm feeling that, how do I endure? How, am I, how, how do I be faithful under that? Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Because he himself, talking of Jesus, he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. because Jesus was there Jesus has been there he was afflicted he was crushed literally he had everything taken from him in this life he knows what it means to suffer he knows what pain looks like he was ridiculed he was beaten he was nailed to a wooden beam for you for me he died for it he had his life taken gave it freely but he died for you, and he came back to life, and the promise of Jesus is that if you do that for me, so will you. That's why he's the one that was dead and now alive, because even if you're faithful to the point of death, do not worry. I was dead and came back to life, and so will you, if you endure and you're faithful for me. James chapter 1 verse 12, the half-brother of Jesus says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, listen, you wanna know what that is? That's eternity. It's eternity. His heaven is the answer to your hell. His, His plan for eternity helps us with our present pain. Being a disciple of Jesus means following him and all that comes with that in light of eternal glory. So do not fear, be faithful. Faithful, be faithful. You could just remember those two things. Do not fear, be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. Somebody say with me. Do not fear, be faithful. Because when you find yourself afraid this week, Tell yourself, do not be afraid, be faithful. When you find yourself wanting to compromise your faith for comfort in life, be faithful. So the disciples in Smyrna, did they keep the faith? Yes. And we know this because out of the seven churches in Revelation that Jesus addressed, only the church in Smyrna still exists today. Smyrna is now called Izmir. I said that at the beginning. Izmir is a vibrant center of Eastern Orthodox worship and education. And I read that over the last 19 centuries, rarely has the pressure lifted for followers of Jesus there, but also its spiritual vitality has never waned. So if Smyrna can do it, so can you. If Smyrna can do it, so can Parkway. If Smyrna can do it, so can the church in Canada. Will churches of our time stand when the pressure increases? I wonder. Will you? Will you stand? i talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm not talking about other things. Don't try to twist my words. Will you be faithful to Jesus? The only clue we have for that is how we're doing with the lesser tests now that come our way. But Jesus ends this, and I'm gonna end here and I'm gonna pray for us. He ends this by saying, to the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. If you hold on in this life, you get life in the next. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you see everybody here and you know all of our Circumstance, You know any suffering we may experience. You know the affliction we, that may come. God, you see our nation. You see what's going across our nation. You see the division, Lord. You see the hostility. You see the slander. God, you see it all. Lord, I pray that your church in Canada, I pray that the church parkway, that we, Lord, would not fear what is to come. In our individual life, and as a nation. In our day-to-day relationships, home, environment, workplace, school, we would not fear what we are about to face because we know that, Lord, we suffer and we're tested so that we can become more like Christ. So help us to be faithful even to the point of death. I pray that you'd fill every mind with the word of God and you would draw us to scripture and we would learn more and you'd, you'd, you'd draw us, God, into your presence, God, that, that our cup would overflow so that when we face suffering of all kinds and if we ever face persecution to this degree, we could not fear and we could be faithful. Help us to hold on to that, Lord. Encourage somebody today, Spirit of God. You see every heart. Encourage someone, Lord. Let them know that you see them, that you know what they're going through, that you've not forgotten them, that you're the first and the last. You know the end result. And Lord, just call them to hold on and remain faithful, I pray. Bless this church, God. And you know people who are here, Lord, maybe they're in this room, maybe they're watching online, and they've never put their trust in you as Lord and Savior. They've never given their life to you. They've never committed to Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd stir their affections. You'd open their eyes to their sin that they would turn to you, God, they would receive your forgiveness and you would change their life. Our, our heart is not that we just come here and hear the word and leave, Lord, but that we actually encounter a real God in a way that is transformative. So help us not just to be hearers of this, but doers of this. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say with me, amen. So listen, if you're here today and you need prayer, I'm gonna be up at the front to pray with you. Don't be afraid, be faithful. God bless you.